this is the second second session in uh, what uh, what we titled what I learned on my summer vacation and I know for some because uh, for it's the only t it, twice a year I repeat in church what I do here this is one of those times so if you're out of that church group and there's probably just a couple of you I apologize for the redundancy but you're here so hang on um, it's also a time where we kind of get away from a, a, a study flowing out of the scriptures necessarily and where I get to look at at stuff that I see, hear, experience. It's just a great time for me and hopefully helpful to you as well. We looked at last week, don't need to recap it. One of the things we did on summer vacation, we were up at Cannon Beach and I am a huge Cannon Beach guy. I love Cannon Beach. In fact, how good is life? I just got a call from them yesterday uh, to book coming up for a week at the uh, 4th of July next summer. Perfect, and I could not say yes fast enough. So when you're in that environment, it's a testing environment. We, we have it at church. We are, we are trying, attempting to teach young men in particular how to preach. And I try to tell them it's like anything else. I mean, I, you can go to a sales class, but the way you learn to sell is to sell. And the way you learn to preach is to preach, and the best way to learn is to be in environments that you really are uncomfortable in and really are beyond you. And a conference is a lot like that, because when you walk into a conference setting, you got no idea who's there or what's there. you got churches of all different backgrounds. In fact, we were at the ASU game a couple weeks ago sitting in that weather delay, and there's like five or six of us at a table, and we start talking, and then all of a sudden somebody mentions East Valley Bible Church, and, and this guy was there, and he said, are you guys part of East Valley Bible Church? And, and you know, we said, well, we go there. And, and, he, and no, no. And, and he said, my sister was just at a conference in Cannon Beach, and there was a guy from your church who was up there and taught, and she said, I ought to go hear this guy. And I said, he's incredible. He's unbelievable. He is the best. Now, he said, I, I, every time he speaks, he just captures my attention. So, funny. Well, when we go into those semi-hostile environments, potentially, we always try to diffuse them a bit. So, a little bit of humor. We may have talked about, used some of this in here before, but one of the things we talk about is we know there's Episcopalians and Presbyterians and all these others, but are there any of you from a redneck church? How do you know if you're from a redneck church? Let me give you four or five things. Number one, the finance committee refuses to provide funds for the purchase of a chandelier because none of the members know how to play one. So that's one way. When the, and this is good. When the pastor says, I'd like Bubba to help take up an offering, five guys and two women stand up. That's a redneck church. Baptism is referred to as branding. That's a redneck church. Too, too, I like this. You've got to listen closely. When finding and returning lost sheep isn't just a parable. Uh, you're in a redneck. I like that. Here's the last. <laughs> People think rapture is what happens to you when you lift something too heavy. You're in a redneck church. So. so what happened to a Sunday is, I have the graphics, which I don't hear, so I had a couple of pictures, and one of them, I wish I could do this show. It for you. One of them is a redneck walking his dog. It's a guy sitting in a chair with a uh, Coke, looking at a TV with his dog on a leash, and the dog's on a treadmill. And it's perfect. 
And the other one was a, a redneck palm pilot, and it's a palm with a string, and it just has on it written, get beer. So I thought that was pretty good. Well, I said last week I, I read a lot. I did read a lot, and I read this, this book is totally a checkbook. Uh, this is just a checkbook. The cover's a check cover. I mean, it's just the colors, and, and you look in the back, and there's two ladies, and you look on, indoor, you look on the forwards, Katie Couric, and the, ta- the, the title is Tales from the Bed, hang with me now, on Living, Dying, and Having It All, a memoir. And whenever I see, and I, and I tend to hang and, and peruse in like a Barnes & Noble, that's why I'm going tonight for the debate, is to Barnes & Noble. I'm going to go to Barnes & Noble because I, I don't, I don't want to watch this. And so I'm going to go to Barnes and & Noble. And, and I like to hang out where they'll have, like Barnes & Noble usually has a section where they'll go unusual reading or they'll have different things. And Barnes and & Noble, and I'm a big Borders guy, but Borders is losing me gradually over several issues. They have the, the, the dirtiest restrooms in the world, which I don't understand. And they took out, we've talked about this before, they took out the biography section, which to me is stupid, especially when you come in and they have a section that goes new biography. If you have new biography, why wouldn't you have old biography? So I have my own little problems. So I see this book, and it's on living and dying and having it all. And it's a memoir by a gal as told to her sister. So I pick it up, and the story is there's this young lady, there's these three sisters, and they are close, they're tight, they're friends. And they're ready to embark on perhaps a new business venture when this one, Jennifer, has some problems and some spasms in some of her arms and legs. Finally, it drives her to the doctor, and she has Lou Gehrig's disease. And the book is about, from that point on, what happens to her. She ultimately dies. Her sister finishes writing the book. And for whatever reason, though I really do think it's a chick book, I, I, I wrote it, I, I got it all turned up, and there were just a lot of things in there. Let me read you one. So we're trying to see what I learned on my summer vacation. Let me read you one little one paragraph. Why me? You've asked that question, I'm sure. I have. My sisters have. Why us? Why did a fatal disease with no medicine break up our miraculous love and cut it short? I don't know. All I know is that everyone has a why me. Look at Christy Brinkley, which, by the way, is pretty good advice. But... I, I, I digress. Look at Christy Brinkley. You wouldn't think she has a why me, but I bet she does. Look at your parents, your friends, your children. Look in the mirror. Everyone faces a challenge. Everyone has a why me. I got a pretty bad one. Now, a little bit earlier, she has this simple sentence, six words if I remember correctly. Unfairness is a fact of life. When I read this, coupled with a whole bunch of other things in that book, I, 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 I go back to what was going on in my life. As I was leading up to vacation, and this is just me and your vision may be way different, I was really, 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 really working hard last year. I mean really working hard in my economy. Lots of hours, uh, lots of issues, lots of stuff, lots of teaching, lots of stuff, just working hard. And so people were saying to me as I was getting ready for vacation, you deserve it. You deserve vacation. 
And then we went away, had a great time, came back for a meeting, came back, and they said, how's vacation going? How was the cruise? We said, it was great. And they said, you deserve it. And then we went away, went up to Flag, and we had this great place, and it was terrific, and it was ideal, and it was magnificent. We're going to be there the first two weeks of August next year. I can't wait. And, and we came back. They said, how was Flag? And I said, it was terrific. And they said, you deserve it. Then we went away to Cannon Beach, and we came back, and now we're back. And, and they said, how was, how was, now this is when I come back, and I always get a little sensitive about this. They'll say, how was your summer? And I'll say, well, technically June and July stunk because I was here with you. So what you meant was, how was August? Okay, I get a little sensitive there. And I said, it was terrific. And they said, you deserve it. In the back of, of our worship center, there's the music offices, and one of the music guys has a little plaque back there that deals with this topic. And the plaque simply says this. I deserve to burn in hell. Anything less than that is a pretty good day. That's what I want to focus on, because I know what they mean. I say the same thing. You deserve it. You've worked hard. You deserve it. Sometimes, I fear, we forget what we actually have earned. The wages of sin is death. I deserve hell. I deserve to burn in hell. Anything less than that is a pretty good day. What I want you to get here is a biblical view of how God sees you and me as lost people. Paul writes and gives it to us in Romans chapter 3. Here's what he says. There's none righteous, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seek for God. Together they have all become useless. There's none who does good, not even one. And all have sinned. It's a universal statement. Each and every human being that's ever lived is a sinner. And the wage of sin is death. And what I deserve is not just separation from God, but I deserve eternal destruction. It's so important for you and me to start to see our lives and to see especially sin as God sees it. Because our flinch is to always minimize it. I had a couple of illustrations that I use all the time. One of them is Adam. That's a great illustration. Because when you read the story, you kind of look at it and you go, what did Adam do? He ate some fruit. What's the big deal? And certainly I can understand, God, if you want to duke it out with Adam, have at it. If you want to punish Adam and you want to put him in timeout for a while, I understand that. But clearly, you're not going to let that sin pass on to all humanity. You're not going to let that usher in sickness and death, and suffering, and pain. You understand that. You and I understand that, don't we? We understand that before Adam's sin, nothing was dying, and nothing was scheduled to die, but with Adam's sin comes condemnation to the world, and don't you and I look at that and go, man, how big's the sin? It's this big. How big's the punishment? It's this big. And don't you sound like one of your kids when you want to go to God and say, God, what's the big deal? You seem all bent out of shape here. We see it all through Scripture. I love the illustration of David. Remember the story? David takes a census. Seems like a harmless thing to do. We do it every 10 years. He takes a census. He counts the horses. He counts the people. Counts the wealth. Counts what's going on. And God says, okay, that's it. And you're going, what's the big deal? Well, God had said, don't take a census. Why? Well, because the minute you do, it's kind of like you are every quarter when you get your statement and you look at that money and you go, look at this money, I'm, I'm, I'm secure. 
Look at this, I'm secure. Look at this house. What can touch me? And God had said, don't do it. So now it's time to punish him. And God says, you got three options here, David. What do you want? And David comes to his senses and said, God, you pick what's appropriate. And God kills 70,000 people. Isn't that amazing? Now, how big is that sin? I mean, I find myself on this one going, hey, really? How big a deal is this? How big is the punishment this? Our view of sin and our view of our own sin is to always minimize it. And we look at God's punishment and we sound like my kids used to sound, what's the big deal, Dad? What's the big deal, Dad? I'll just take out Dad and put in, what's the big deal, God? So, so, hey, look it. So I fudge a little on my income tax. We just had a discussion just this morning, and I heard a phrase I've heard a thousand times. Because the guy's confronting another guy, and he says, isn't that illegal? Isn't that wrong? And the guy's response was, not if you, get, not if you don't get caught. <laughs> it's wrong. I, I read, and I didn't bring it in here for what I learned on my summer vacation. It was a Dear Abby. And a kid's writing in and said, listen, I'm feeling guilty here because I took something uh, that, that, that belonged to somebody else. I talked to my friend, and he says, no. He said, stealing is just borrowing without asking for permission. <laughs> Harkens you back to the Clinton days, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, it's just... <laughs> No, and so finally, and, and, and it was something, and they, they ate it or whatever, and they couldn't get rid of it. And, and so she wrote back and said, no, borrowing, by definition, is asking for permission. Stealing, stealing. So we were, but that's kind of our reaction. As I'm on vacation, I'm, I'm reading different things, and I read a lot of periodicals, and to be really honest, not because I'm trying to expand my knowledge, I'm looking for quotes to use for you. Here's one, Jamie Lee Curtis out of Moore Magazine from September. I'm freer today than I've ever been. Listen to this. Why? Why is she freer today than she's ever been? Because I'm in control. Control of what? <laughs> Here's this. Marry, marry that with the story of the girl in this book who cannot even control her right arm. We're not in control of anything. We may have an illusion of control. Now, there's some things you can't control. I mean, you can control your attitude. You can control your response. You can control your behavior so it's not sinful. I mean, I understand that, but, but what she, I'm in control of my life. I'm in control of my domain. I'm in control. Silly. That's the start. What I want to spend the day on is this. There's no way you can see it. This is Newsweek magazine from September 13th. So not outdated at all. This was pretty current stuff. And the cover story is a picture of a gal, looks to be a mother, head-to-head -head with a young man, young boy. He looks to be, I'd say, about 12. He's got earphones in. He's looking at her, staring at her. They're in a face-off. And the headline and the story is, How to Say No to Your Kids. Now, what this article says, it's kind of interesting. The article basically says this. Saying no, If let me put it the other way. Not saying no, in other words, being permissive with your kids can have some bad results, and they may not be responsive. I'm stunned that that's front page material, but apparently it is. So what I want to talk about is parenting. Now, some of you are going, why are we, why, get, it, get, the, get your coat, Bessie, we're out of here, we're not parents anymore. You're grandparents, you're talking to parents, I don't care. Every person, if you got a mom, a dad, 
if you were born into this world and you got contact with somebody, you need to be through this because you need to think it through. I don't have the notes. The notes are on the website if you want to download them. So if you go to evbc.org, you can download them. I'd spend just a second here as a caveat because there's two things that we can talk about in here that instantaneously produce reaction. Divorce and marriage and kids. We're not going to talk about divorce and marriage, but we're going to talk about kids. The minute we talk about it, some of you are careening out of control. There's all sorts of emotion. There's all sorts of guilt. There's all sorts of problems. That's okay. This is not meant to be discouraging, but encouraging. And as I said, if you're married and don't have kids, if your kids are out of the house, you need this because you're going to have an opportunity to talk to people about it. Now, I add, hit the pause button on that. When I'm in church, I would say what also is really divisive is music. If I go to, and all, every time I say it, at every church you laugh, you laugh because it's an issue. So I made this point when I was teaching this in church, music is divisive. Here's a note that I got. And, and I have no, it's written, I, my suspicion by the handwriting, by a, a man and an older man. And, um, and he misspelled my name. So we're starting off, we're not starting off well. Here's what he said. Your music does not need to be divisive. Abandon the rock and roll theme and return to a more serene and respectable music format. It's like exhibit A of what I was saying. Your music doesn't have to be divisive. Just do what I would like you to do. And let me read you the rest of it. Unsigned, obviously, always. Your current format is based on repeat, repeat, repeat. Does this sound like your church? And has little, if any, musical value. Let's develop this lifestyle. We work when we work. We play when we play. We attend concerts when we look for musical nourishment. Be prayerful and quiet in the Lord's place of worship. Be joyful that we can be absorbed in his word and not revved up by the band. I, it's like exhibit A of what I was trying to say to them, and they, it doesn't need to be divisive. That's a side note. We're back to the lesson. Kids, before I was getting ready to teach this, I got this letter, this email. I understand you said you were going to talk about the importance of parents saying no to their kids. I think it's coming this Sunday. So this was the email I got the Sunday before I taught this. If so, I think that's great. I'm a junior high math teacher, and I can't tell you how much parents need to hear this. I've been teaching for more than 20 years, and parenting skills are at an all-time low. Parents are becoming more and more permissive with their kids. As a result, those kids are getting harder and harder to teach. At parent-teacher conferences, it's sometimes hard to determine which one is the child and which is the parent. When I know I'm going to have to call a parent about, and then she uses this imaginary name, Biff, about Biff's behavior, my head starts to ache. I know I'll likely hear a boatload of excuses about why Biff can't be expected to behave or that my expectations are just too high for poor Biff. Many parents are just caving into their kids, and these kids are running the show. Now, in a paragraph, she said basically what's in that Newsweek article. 
One of the experts says this, it's almost like parents have lost their parenting skill. They want to be their kids' best friends, make sure they're having fun, and what kids really need is for parents to be parents. Let me just encourage that, because I hear this all the time, especially as kids get a little bit older. I just want to be your friend. You're not their friend. You're their mom, you're their dad. And there is inevitably going to be a conflict. Your management, their labor. There's going to be this conflict. You are the one that has to toe the line. If you don't do, if you don't take a line, they'll just eat twinkie, 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 twinkie. If you don't play that, you're the parent. You're the responsible one. You're the mature one. You're the one that's been through this. You're the one that's learned. You're not there to be their friend. Their friends they find at school or at the exercise place or at sports or somewhere. Now, there's a point, I think, when they get a little bit older that it becomes more of a friend relationship. But even then, your mom, your dad, their kid. So there's a fatal flaw right there. If you're one of these nuts that says you just want to be a friend to your kid and you want them to have fun, you've already screwed up. Okay? With that loving introduction, let me give you 11 things you can do, 11 things you can do to ruin your kid. You do these 11 things, and I guarantee you, you'll screw your kid up. Number one, attempt to live your life through them. There's an article in the paper when we get back, you all probably saw it, where they have been forced to cancel the Pop Warner playoffs. Now, they're canceling the Pop Warner playoffs because of the rampant cheating on the part of the parents. You're moving kids around. They're lying about ages. It's like, it's, it's like the one... I knew there was something up a couple years ago in the World Series when the pitcher had a better beard than me. Okay? I thought, my, he looks like he's in his early 30s for a 12-year-old. And what is that all about? And, and it's just watching. I listen to parents. You watch them in these events. You watch the dads duke it out at a hockey match. You listen. You go to a, a grade school basketball game, and the parents are screaming at the officials, yelling at coaches. You're getting, there's a whole booming industry teaching your, your, you know, these 12-year-olds how to, how to hit and how to run. And almost always, it's mom or dad, just living out their life through them. <coughs> Tiger Woods has now brought to the driving range four-year-olds with dads who has them there hitting balls and dads who now have little girls out thinking they're Michelle Wee. And that's fine. I don't think there's anything wrong with having a dream for your kid and fueling that dream. But you better watch closely because my experience is most of that is about your pride, not their well-being. My, my favorite illustration is from my own life. It's Iowa Basic Skills Test. And I can't even speak about Iowa Basic Skills anymore without my son-in-law, Tyler. His mom tells this great story. When Tyler was first, second grade, time to go to school, he starts crying. I don't want to go to school. I don't want to go to school. I don't want to go to school. Which is very uncharacteristic of Tyler because Tyler wanted to get me to school. And finally, she calmed him down enough to say, what's the problem? Why don't you want to go to school? And he said, we're taking the Iowa basic skills test today, and I don't know anything about Iowa. Okay? <laughs> and what's interesting, what's interesting, every time I say that, you hear that whole group of women go, 
Aww. And the guys go, what a putz. You know, it's funny. So Sarah gets her Iowa basic skills results at the end of her first grade year, and I, I look at him, and I discover that she is average. And I mean, I'm traumatized by this, and so I have to set her down. I set her down, and I explain, now, you can't understand all this, but this says you're average. Now, we got good news, and that's the bad news. The good news is it comes from your mother's side of the family, and we can work, we can navigate our way through this. Okay, let's get down and dirty. Why do I care about her Iowa basic skills test and first grade? It's for one reason and one reason only. I want to have this extraordinary kid, so you'll look at the kid and say, she must have a great dad. Most of the time, even, let's, this is really honest, and this is maybe more of a reflection about sick I am than you, but, but I think most people, even when they want these good things for their kids, somewhere mixed in there with a pretty high percentage is, I want them to do well because it reflects well on me and it minimizes the problems I have. So you're living your life through your kid. You'll ruin the kid. Here's the second thing. Just do this. Refuse to fulfill your God-given role. And by that I mean in marriage. These kids need to see a mom and dad who love and care for each other. They need to see love. I think they need to see physical contact. The kids were over the other day uh, to watch the Iowa game. We watch all the Iowa games, and it's been pretty painful here lately. We watch all the Iowa games. And, and in our, in our uh, like family room where we watch, we have this giant L-shaped, whatever it is, kind of a couch thing, sectional. And, it's, and it just envelops you. It's the most comfortable you just, it's perfect. Well, I looked the other day, and Haley and Tyler are down there, and they're all wrapped around each other watching the game. And Timmy and Sarah are there, and they're kind of wrapped around each other watching the game. And I'm thinking, I hope they keep that up the rest of their lives. The tendency is to not. But especially with the kids. I used to all the time be wrestling with Susan. And I'd be, um, I'd be all over. I'd give me a kiss. And, they, and the girls would be going, oh, gross, yuck. You know. Or it might have been Susan going gross, yuck. But somebody, I know somebody was grossed out by it. Somebody thought it was yucky. But the girls would say, hey, wrestle with her, dad. They needed to know where you're there. They needed to see dad's lead. Gentlemen, they need you to say, take the lead, and that's in, in, in these areas, especially in the area uh, of religion and faith. And, and, and ladies, they need to see from you what a, what a godly wife is all about. Don't show them that. Stay real stoic. Stay away from each other. Don't ever tell each other that you love them. Don't ever show any affection from one of you to the other. Don't let the kids see that, and man, that'll screw them up really big. That'll give them a great picture of marriage. And most of the times when they see that, they're going to end up acting that out in their own marriage. Here's a third thing you can do to ruin them. Just give them a bunch of stuff instead of love. Here's a new statistic. I have no idea where they get these. Money that families are spending for, on 3 to 12-year-olds, 3-year-olds to 12-year-olds, on entertainment, personal care items, I have no idea what that would be for a 4-year-old, and reading material is now $53.8 billion. It's up from $17 billion just seven years ago. 12 to 19-year-olds are spending money, allowances, money parents give them, money they earn, are now spending, 12 to 19-year-olds, $175 billion every year. 
So you just give them stuff. Now, here's what Newsweek says. Despite their good intentions, too many parents find themselves raising their phrase, wanting machines, who respond like Pavlov's dogs to the marketing that's aimed at them. Even getting what they want doesn't satisfy these kids. They only want more. Now, listen to this sentence. Saying no is harder when you can afford to say yes. And that's what's problematic for most of you. It's like this election and two Americas and the economy's in the toilet and all this stuff. I don't buy that for a second. And all you got, here's how I prove it. Go over to the good egg and try to get in there to give them $10 for 25 cents worth of eggs and you stand in line 45 minutes to do it. There's my economic indicator right now. With families of four, I watch, it's expensive to eat. And I'm not picking on the good egg, it's, in, it's anywhere you go. You go into a good egg or an egging, you go in there, there's families of four and five. I'm telling you, that's a 60-buck breakfast. Don't tell them, I don't buy how bad it is. It's bad, and you may not have everything, because you're dumping all your money on all this stuff. It's really hard to say no when you can say yes. When you don't have anything, and you're walking around. I don't remember us as kids. And I probably should talk to my mom and dad about it, but it'd be a painful conversation probably. But I don't remember us walking through a store going, I want this, I want this, I want... It just didn't happen, as I remember. Because we knew, hey, we're going to do the best we can for it. If you wanted a ball glove or you wanted a bike, you would identify that in March or April or May, and you'd get it at Christmas. You didn't just kind of indiscriminately walk through a store and say, I want that. My dad would go, oh, perfect, Tommy. What else? Can I get you anything else? I mean, they would all, I mean, that that didn't happen. And and it wasn't that my parents were harsh. My parents were great parents. It wasn't they didn't provide. They did provide. But we didn't have the ability to just go get whatever we wanted. It's hard to say no when you can say yes. And yet, you need to be saying no. I'm watching Airline the other night. You ever watch that show? Great show. And it's where they track the Southwest guys that come in on Monday night. And it's a Monday night show where they track the customer reps and stewardesses in Southwest. they got a plane that's coming in. It's got an 11-year-old kid on it. The kid is an unescorted passenger. He's running up and down the aisle. He's tripping people. He's kicking people. Sounds like a problem. They get him off the plane, and the kid goes, they said, we're trying to get your dad. He said, my dad isn't going to care about this. My dad doesn't care. He isn't going to say anything. So, well, you'll probably be punished. I'm not going to be punished. They finally find the dad. They tell the dad. Did you see this? They tell the dad what happens, and the dad says, well, that's not that bad. You might as well get this kid a timeshare down at Florence right now because that's where he's headed. This is a little delinquent. This is a guy that's going to rob, steal, kill, and murder. It gets into, really, the third thing. You want to screw him up with whole discipline. That kid needs to be whacked seriously, spanked hard, placed in a room, and told not to breathe. Okay? (laughs) And if you... and, And I'll tell you... The only way to fix that kid, the only way to fix that kid is to put some really tight lines around him. Interestingly enough, that's what a psychologist at Temple says. Children need limits on their behavior because they feel better and more secure when they live in certain structure. This kid's trying to figure out what the limits are. And what he's learned at this point is there are no limits. 
and there's no consequences, and just do whatever you want to do. And somewhere, he's going to have to go to work for somebody. And let's hope it isn't you. And he's going to have to learn is, hey, pal, you flip the burger like this, and you say yes and no to the customer, because we're here to serve that customer. And when we say 9 o'clock, we don't mean 9.15, we mean 8.55, you little moron. And you want to ruin him, you let society train him. You don't. Here's the fifth thing. Let peer pressure drive your parenting. Try to just keep up with the Joneses. To worry about what other people think. And we do that all the time. You've done it. You're going over to some people's house. You're right around the corner. You stop the SUV. You turn around and you say, now listen, I'm telling you, if I've got a problem with you tonight, when we're at these people, if I've got a there'll be a price to pay. Why do you do that? Well, because you know these people are going to evaluate you by the way you raise your kids. Hit the pause button. Here's an application. Your heavenly father is evaluated by how his kids behave. Larry used to say it this way, and we can argue all the theology of this. I don't care. It's a point that's made. You may be the only Bible that some people ever see. Here's the six things. Never tell your kids that you're sorry. Don't, don't ever tell them that you're sorry. I learned this. Uh, most of my negative parenting illustrations involve Sarah. Sarah and I are a lot alike. She was the first one, and most of the time you have no idea what you're doing with the first one, I guess. And so I, I think you tend to be especially unfair and harsh to the first one. As a firstborn, that's my belief. Okay, So... Sir and I are a lot alike. We would go like this a lot. And when I say a lot, I mean she would, if there were, Haley had never needed to. I mean, Sarah, you did. And I remember coming home one day. I had a bad day. She was the first. Sarah, the first person I saw. I got honor, 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 honor. And finally, she responded. The problem was mine, not hers. I had provoked my child to anger. I said, you get out of your room, stay in your room. Okay. I'll, I'll let you out of that room when there's an independent elected president. Okay, you're in there. <laughs> she goes to her room. Susan and I have an agreement that there's no way that you disagree on, on the kids in front of the kids. You have that agreement, I imagine. And she is now secure in her room. And Susan said, what are you doing? What is the problem? She didn't do anything. Tom, she's standing there. And you just launch into her. And ultimately, she's going to respond. I said, what do I do? And she said, you better go tell her you're sorry. And I remember this was the first of many times where I would go to her room and say, I blew it. I'm sorry. And she's four or five years old. As many times as Sarah and I went like this, not one time did it carry over to the next day. Not once. It was amazing to me because sometimes there'd be some real disagreements and she'd go to bed and she'd wake up the next morning and I mean, it was like it never happened. And I'll tell you why we're able to do that. Two reasons. Number one, she knew I loved her. Number two, she knew if I screwed up, I was willing to say I was sorry. We had a thing. She was older. Seems to me like it involved a boy. I'm not sure. She was older and I said, no, 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 no. Fine. She said, fine. And she said, look it, I want you to, I, I, I said, I'm serious about this. And she said, Dad, if that, I do not agree at all with that. You're 
assessment of him and the situation is absolutely wrong. I don't agree with it at all, but if you say do it, I'm going to do it because you must think it's right. And that was the relationship we had. And I think it all goes back to an understanding of being willing to say, you know what, I screwed up. A couple more things. We got, uh, oh my, seven, eight minutes. Number seven, teach your kid to be open-minded, especially regarding spiritual matters. That'll screw them up. Let your kids just figure out. I still meet people that say, we're just going to expose our kids to all sorts of religions and let them pick the one they like. I go back to food. You don't let them do it with food. And I think, now I'm going to get, I'm gonna, this is kind of a, you know, soapbox for me. I watch parents do stupid things with these teenagers, the biggest of which is not make them be in church. I hear them say, well, they don't want to be there. That's fine. I don't care. They don't want to be in math class. You don't say to them, well, don't go to math class. They don't want to go to school. You don't say go to school. You say, look it, get in there. Their natural response is to not be there. I don't want to go on Sunday sometimes. <laughs> you go. And you start to make this trade-off, and I'm telling you, you pay a price. we got to go fast. Eight, the eighth thing, don't restrain your mouth. Sarah came home one day, or I came home. Susan said, Sarah's so excited. She's in her room. She's so excited. She's been waiting for two hours for you. And she's down there. She's doing some homework or something now. And she said, when you get here, you get down there. You see her. She's ready for you. So I go down. She's so excited. She said, Dad, look at this. And she gave it to me. It was a report card. Five A's and a B. And I looked at it, and I said, Sarah, how'd you get a B? What are you doing with a B? Now, as I say it to you, I cringe, and I cringed right afterwards. And here was this girl so excited, so jacked, so juiced, so, so enthusiastic in her homework to get tomorrow together to do five more A's. And I just took the steam right out of her. I just killed her spirit right like that. Wasn't two minutes later, those books were closed, and she was asleep. Some of you have experienced the pain of that. Some of you have heard from parents or bosses or people that you love, you're stupid, you're dumb, you'll never amount to anything, you can't do it right, don't do it at all. You've heard all those painful things. And then you turn around and you say them. You can take this little thing called tongue, and you may never stab somebody in the back with a knife, but you'll rip them with his tongue. And they'll carry those wounds forever. Two more things, and I'll give them to you quickly. Number nine, accept the two-income myth. There's this lie that's going around that says it takes two incomes to live. It does at a certain level. I want to be sensitive. There's some people, I got it. You're a single mom, single parent. There's tough times. There's economic change. Something, you got it. I got it. I got it. I understand it. But the vast majority of the time, you're pursuing this two income thing simp simply to fulfill your wants, not your needs. I, I hear this all the time. You know, I'll get, you get the same mail I get. Oh, they took prayer out of the school, blah, 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 blah. I'll tell you, when we had a cultural downshift, when moms went to work, that's when the culture changed, right there. Because now, there's nobody holding it anymore. There's nobody holding it together anymore. Let me tell you what a, what a three, four, five, six-year-old, what a third, fourth, fifth grader needs, what a junior high, high school student needs. One thing, a mom 
to be there. Now, dad plays a role. I got it figured out. I understand it. This is why people might say, and they do, he's chauvinistic, he's archaic. He's, I'm just telling you the facts. It's just the way it is. And they need to know. They need to know that. Enough. Number 10, when problems come into a marriage, just split up because it's best for the kids. It's not best for the kids. Here's what's best for the kids. You love each other, put God in the center of it, and let the kids see that. That's what's best for the kid. The best is not to split up. Some of you are 30, 40 years old, and I'm telling you, I meet with you, and you're still messed up from when your parents were divorced. Here's the last thing, real quickly. It's kind of the flip of all this. You want to screw them up, hold them too tightly. Don't let them go. Don't let them be independent. I've got the pot. That's kind of a downer. Let me give you some up real quick. I, let me take like five minutes here. Number one, remember you're the boss. You're the boss. They aren't. If you can't control a four-year-old, something's wrong with you. Right? Figure it out. And, and you may need to, here you go, like spank them. Here's the second thing. There's no one-size-fits-all approach. People want this fixed. They want this one single thing. I see it in education. I take a lot of grief. People will come in and say, what is the church's position on education? Our position is you ought to be educated. We don't say public school, private school, home school. I've seen private school kids who are all screwed up and private school kids who are on their way to seminary. I've seen public school kids who are all screwed up. I've seen public school kids who are using the school to bring their kids to Christ and blah, blah, blah. I've seen homeschoolers who are on their way to med school. I've seen homeschoolers who at age 18 leave the house, go gothic, and get pregnant. I've seen it all. That right there tells me there's not one way. There's not a single way. There are these principles, but how you implement them is up to you. And there's this big desire, okay? I see this all the time in parenting. To make, you want to make your thing be my thing. I, I don't need your thing. I want to learn, I want to grow, but I'm going to adapt this differently. When you've got something called growing kids God's way, you're implying that there is God's way, and then out there's everything else. There's a little danger in that. Here's the third thing. Uh, teach them what's significant. This is great, and, and I know we're right up against the time. Last year, American Idol, they're at the very end. They're getting ready to here, say, here's the new American Idol. So they talk to Simon Cowell, which is probably the only reason to watch this show. And they're on there and say, what's going to happen? What will happen to this person? Here's what he says, and I quote, they'll get what they've always wanted, fame, stardom, and a ton of money. That's what it's all about. A couple of months later, Marlon Brando dies. And they start replaying interviews with Brando. Now, I, I, I acknowledge I don't get acting. I, I don't think acting's that big a deal. I don't, I mean, Stella, I can do that, okay? <laughs> I, I don't, I, I don't, I really don't. I, this is such a head game that they play. It's like, that was an incredible performance. Come on. Here's what Brando said. Now, here's the guy. He's way beyond the American Idol. He's got it. Greatest actor that ever lived. That's what they told me. Here's what Brando said. The idea of being successful and having a lot of money and having all your dreams come true is completely crazy. I've had so much misery in my life being rich and famous. I thought that's what it's all about. 
See, if you want to teach them what's significant, it's not about teaching them to be in the Hall of Fame. It's not about teaching them to make every free throw, hit every ball. It's not about even sending them to school. Even send them to school with the wrong reason. If you go down to ASU and you interview 100 kids and say, why are you here? And they say, I want to get an education. Why do you want to 